Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is James Rebanks. He is the author of The Shepherd's Life and The Shepherd's View. You may know him better as Herdwick Shepherd or at Herdy Shepherd One. He's been sharing pictures of his life and his sheep and sheepdogs and the landscape on Twitter to more than 80,000 followers, including myself. And I'm delighted that he's here in the United States and here on Life Stories to talk about his books. James, pleasure to have you. Yeah, pleasure to be on the podcast as well. I'm, uh, and thank you for having me in New York. As I mentioned, um, you're, you're well known on Twitter as, uh, as the Hardwick Shepherd. Actually, quite deliberately for the early part of your online career, you know, you were only known as the Herdwick Shepherd. James Rebanks being put forward is, is a rather recent innovation. The truth is I didn't really want to, um, I didn't want any kind of celebrity or aggrandizement of me. That's not really what it's about. I wanted to, to share a working life of the people and the dogs and the sheep in our landscape. And uh, one of the things I read about in the book is, um, I say I wanted to write a history of the nobodies, the ordinary working men and women that, that make a lot of our rural landscapes and urban landscapes what they are. Uh, it felt like a more honest way to do that to me, to for me not to be pushing myself forward as, as or, or bigging myself up is the English expression. So yeah, I, I tweeted for the first two or three years anonymously and enjoyed that. And my neighboring shepherds uh, had great fun trying to work out who I was by looking at the landscape and the photographs and trying to work out who that must be. And yeah, and when I first wrote the book, The Shepherd's Life, I did that um, anonymously and, and hoped to publish it anonymously. But people wiser than me told me I, I wouldn't get away with that. So I may as well put my name on it and accept the reality of it. And it sounds like both from the second book, The Shepherd's View, which is the most recent one, and also just from, you know, the continuing things that you're posting on Twitter, it, it doesn't sound like life has changed very much for you, even having stepped forward. Uh, no, the truth is I live, um, I live in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by hills, and my nearest neighbor is about a mile away from where I live, and there are probably only about 100 people live within three or four miles of where I live. So, uh, yeah, my day-to-day -day life and the life of my family is just what it always was, really, 90, 95% of the time. So uh, we're very lucky. We live in a beautiful place, and we, we live a sort of rural farming life. Uh, they're just slightly crazy moments where journalists turn up from all around the world occasionally to, to write a piece about us or, or to talk about the books. And Yeah, and I've had, I had an amazing experience because my books have uh, been translated into 20 languages, and it's like a bestseller in Germany and Norway and Spain and all over the place. So, so yeah, I've had to learn to uh, cope with a little bit more personal attention than, than maybe I'm entirely comfortable with, but that's okay. I'm, I'm very grateful for the things that have happened to me. You write about, and, and, you, and you've talked about how you wanted to tell the story of your land and the people who have lived in it, a story that's often been ignored. And specifically, you're in the Lake District of England, and that is a much mythologized and much romanticized landscape. I think like a lot of, certainly a lot of people in England, and, and, and too, I think a lot of people here in the United States and around the world have this very romanticized notion of what the Lake District and the land there is like, one that erases people like you and your families out of the picture. Yeah, a, a little bit. Um, I mean, the truth is, I long before I read the landscape, the literature of my own landscape, and there's mountains of, of books about our landscape. It's probably the most written about landscape in English literature. I fell in love with a uh, lot of American books, to be honest. So things like Catcher in the Rye, things like John Fante. One of my favorite books is 1933 was a very bad year, which I, I love. So I love that American sort of first-person narrative that tells the story of 
the sort of immigrant experience or the working class experience. Uh, so another American writer, I love is Juno Diaz. I, I love those kind of voices. And then when I be, got older and I started to discover that what the literature about our landscape said, I was really shocked that it didn't include us and it didn't include the stories of my father and my grandfather and the other people like them that make the landscape. And yeah, it just to me seemed like a no-brainer that you'd want to you'd want to put the people if you wrote a book about the landscape. The only thing that hadn't been done, the thing that needed to be done, was to put the people back in the working people, the ordinary people, and to tell their story because. As important as it is as a national park and a place of beauty, it has, it's a place with its own way of life, its own culture that goes back thousands of years. And that, to me, is where its real beauty and its interest lies. So I can't out-romanticise Wordsworth, but maybe I can tell some stories uh, about the people in it now in a way that other writers haven't. And, and to be fair to Wordsworth, he actually wrote a lot about the people in that landscape. We've just forgotten about the stuff he wrote. So You quote like a, a wonderful passage in there which... I'm not even going to attempt to, to quote from memory. <laughs> but the gist of, of what he was saying was that, you know, if you actually like sat down and talked to a shepherd around here, that you'd learn some really amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. They have some great insights into and and people seem to yeah, as you say, we kind of elide over I, that and focus on yeah. wandering lonely as a cloud. And I, I think that's common all around the world. If you, I think mm -hmm. if you look at um if you look at how education where education came from and how it's been structured since the Industrial Revolution, it was overwhelmingly about taking the ignorant rural boy or ignorant rural girl and turning them into somebody that was capable of going to be a, to a city to be an industrial worker or an engineer or a professor or whatever. It was all about taking you out of the rural, taking you away from this sort of ignorant, brutish place where nobody has any brains or any ideas. That's a thread that runs right through the schooling and a lot of the thinking behind education in many, many developed countries. I want to tell the story of the kid, maybe smart kid, depending on whether you think I'm smart or not, who stays and why and what it is in the heads of rural people or country people that makes them want to live that life and make them choose choose that, despite maybe there being less money or you being in the middle of nowhere or it being really difficult. I wanted to try and explain through my eyes why that's not a stupid choice, that's a rational choice. You, you write extensively in The Shepherd's Life about how you deliberately you know, were not going off to school originally. Um, you were like, okay, I've put up with this as long as I have to, and the minute I can bail to like work on the family yeah. farm, that's what I want to do with my life. Yeah, and I think it's the blind spot still in many education systems in developed wealthy countries. It's still a blind spot. So if you look, certainly in the UK, if you look at the statistics about the group, the demographic group who's performing worse than education, it's it's white working class boys. And if you talk to white working class boys, for better or worse, and often it's for worse, they have an idea in their heads of who they are, which is tied to the place where they're from, which is tied to the things their fathers and grandfathers did. Now, it becomes tragic if their grandfathers are shipbuilders or farmers or something else, which is no longer going to provide the jobs that they want. But I think I think there's not enough books written about that. So there's a, there's a very long tradition of writing about the land or writing about nature. But it tends to be white middle-class males, sometimes females, and they tend to be writing about it from a sort of leisured perspective. So it doesn't tend to be the person that's pulling the turnips or, or ploughing the field. It tends to be somebody who somehow has enough time and enough money to wander through it and wonder how beautiful it is. And that runs right through Wordsworth. It runs through right through sort of Edward Thomas and other sort of famous English poets. But the Americans joined in as well. A lot of American nature writing is like that as well. And it's beautiful and it's special and it's wonderful writing. But it's not the full story of what happens on the land. So in a small way, I wanted to try and redress that balance and write a book through the eyes of people that see it as a working landscape and, and, and locate their sense of self in, in the work of the land. There's one book in particular that seems to have been a big inspiration for you when you were younger, Hudson's A Shepherd's Life. Yeah. Uh, you stumbled upon that yeah. book in your, your family's library and were just you know gobsmacked. 
And, and actually, it isn't. Um, I, I've read that book several times since. It's a lovely book. It isn't actually, if I'm honest, it isn't the brilliance of the writing mm-hmm. or even the brilliance of the story, although there, there is brilliance in both of those things. It was pure and simply, I'd gone right through school, never once imagining that books could be about us, about people like us. And then I, I stumble across this book when I'm 15 or 16, and suddenly I'm reading a book which, which to me feels like it's about my people, it's about my grandfather, it's about people that work on the land. And just oh, immediately, within seconds of reading a few pages of this book, I think, whoa, hang on a minute, I've just flunked school because I thought it was nothing to do with me. And, and actually, writing can be all about us. One of the books I read immediately after that was The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway, which is still one of my favourite books. And that had the same effect on me. I read the story of the boy uh, who loves the old fisherman and the, the, the beauty of that relationship and the admiration he has for that old man when everybody else doubts him. And that, too, had the same effect. It made me think, oh, I want to write a book like old, The Old Man and the Sea, but about my grandfather as a shepherd took me about 25 years to pull that off, but that's really where the idea of my book came from. You know, a lot of the first half of The Shepherd's Life is about that deliberate choice that you made, having gone through the early stages of school, of deciding, you know, I don't want that, you know, I don't want to go further down this path, I don't want to be going off to the big city. Well, the the truth is, it's because it all felt to me like it was about taking you out, Mm -hmm. out of who you were, out of the place you love, out of the things that you identify with, and... My 15-year-old's response to that was, screw you, you can have that. I, you people don't respect me, you don't care about what I care about, I won't play this game at all. So what was the tipping point that set you on the path that you ultimately decided, it's like, okay, I'm going to go to Oxford? Well, there, there are two or three moments. So one moment is I, I fall in love with reading after I leave school. So I leave school, I work on the farm, I did it for nine years, I'm a labourer, and I love that, and I learn loads from it, and I don't regret a minute of it. But I had, we lived in the middle of nowhere, and I'm a teenage boy. There's, there's only so many nights of the week you can chase girls or drive your car or whatever. So what do you do? Um, well, we, this is the 1980s, so there's only one TV in our home, and my dad watches whatever he likes, and I think he's got lousy taste in TV. So I start reading books out of my mother's bookcase, and I fall in love with some of the books I just mentioned. So, so something's happening in my brain. I'm thinking, we, I could be a writer and a farmer, maybe. Although I've never heard of anyone that did those two things at that age. I thought, maybe I could do this somehow. And then, in the years that followed, my father's, my father's farm was struggling and we were basically going broke. And as many people who've worked in a family business will know, there's often not enough space for you to grow up and be who you want to be. So you want to be the boss. You want to run the business. You want to be the chief. And actually, you're not going to be. For 20 years, you know that your dad's going to be the boss. And, I ended up loving and becoming great friends with my dad, but um, it, when I was maybe 20 years old, it was very bitter and we were sort of getting on top of each other and it wasn't having a good effect on me. So my younger sisters turned out to be really school smart and did interviews for sort the top universities in the UK. And that was that was a revelation to me as well, because I was like, oh, hang on a minute, I didn't think anyone in our family went to university. And suddenly my sister, younger sisters are showing me that actually you can. So a combination of all those things, uh, I had a huge fight with my dad and I didn't know what to do. So I'm, I'm looking for, I'm flashing around looking for something to do, and I decide that, and I wrote about this in the book, I, I have a very cynical idea, which is if I can go to university, I can get a good white-collar job, and maybe I can earn as much money as the people in our landscape who are buying the houses up, people from the towns, and maybe in 20 years' time, when it really matters, when my dad's in decline, I'll be there. So I'll be the one that's there, and I'll have some money, and I'll be in the right place, and I'll take over the farm. I look back in a grim sort of shudder about this, but my, my life plan was basically to do something horrible for 20 years that I didn't want to do so that I was in the right place 20 years later. But at the same time, it's, it, I mean, it's, it comes from like very specific sort of circumstances. I mean, you also write about how when your grandfather died, you had seen what had happened to the farm and, and it happens to a lot of farms in that area. 
you know, the money isn't there and the farm has to be yeah. like broken up and, and split up yeah, and the family yeah. business gets you, torn apart. Yeah, you, 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 you might think from the outside that you become a farmer by doing farming. But the truth is you can, and this is in some ways the story of my dad. Uh, he worked for his father basically for a pittance, for slave money. And the, and the gig was that eventually you'd take over the farm, you'd inherit it. But you can get a long way down that line. You could devote most of your life to it. Somebody the other day said to me, this is like Prince Charles. I said, yeah, it's like a peasant version of sort of Prince Charles. You can devote your whole life to something and it may never happen for various reasons. You know, the farm may go bankrupt before it's your turn to take over. In some ways, the best thing you could do in a family farm is to is to do something else and have the money to be there at the moment where stepping in is possible. And, well, that was the conclusion I drew when I was 20 years old. So I, I don't recommend to anybody... <laughs> educating yourself just in such a cynical way to try and earn money doing something you hate. And the truth is that isn't how I ended up. I I discovered there are other things I enjoy in the world. But there are other jobs that I think are interesting and I, I've actually had a really interesting life doing things off the farm as long alongside sort of staying involved with the farm. And I don't regret any of those things. I've been really, really lucky. I've had sort of two or three lives crammed into one really. I mean a lot of the stuff that you've done off the farm sounds really fascinating in that in the same way that you kind of devoted yourself to preserving a way of life, or at least, you know, creating a world in which the way of life of you and your neighbors could be preserved. You know, you're a consultant um, with UNESCO. Uh, I was until recently. I stopped, okay. I stopped a couple of years ago. Okay. But, uh, but, but you had been consulting with other people around the world in, in similar regions where it's like, okay, how do we deal with the fact that, you know, we have these places yep. that people are coming to because they think that they're like quaint and rustic and picturesque or whatever. You know, how do you authentically preserve the way of life that yeah. those people are living? I, I, I think so. And I, one of the nicest things about writing my book has been that wherever I go around the world, people, people come to me and they want to tell me their farming story and they want to tell me about the things they care about, old things that they, they don't want to disappear, that they're trying to fight to, to keep hold of and keep alive. And I think, although on one level my book's just, just a sort of memoir about growing up on a farm, that I, I hope it's also about some of the questions that raises. So... Do we want to live in a world in which everything all just disappears? Are there things from the past? Are there older, less efficient farming landscapes and systems that that might matter for a whole bunch of reasons? And if we do think those things matter, then why don't we? You know, why don't we shop in a way that makes them survive more effectively? And and what can you really do about it? And a lot of my sort of I had a freelance job basically advising UNESCO and others um, that I managed to fit in around my farm work because I could do it in the evenings or whatever. I'm, I'm fascinated by those questions. I'm fascinated by how quickly the world's changing. I'm, I've never been to America before, so I'm fascinated in the last two days when I look at very very urban landscapes and I'm observing and trying to understand what people's relationship in cities is is with their food and what are they worried about and what are, you know is it, does this work perfectly? Is this the future and should we all just chill out because it's all fine and not worry about the old world ways disappearing or are there flaws in the sort of in the world that we're building i wouldn't presume to tell anybody in, in new york how to live but um, my fear is that we're building a world with flaws that we're too disconnected from our food that we build economic systems in which we only care about efficiency and cheapness and we're losing birds we're losing wildlife we're losing insects we're, we're seeing our rural communities decimated and perhaps worse of all we're seeing massive levels of inequality and sort of accumulation of wealth and power and land in fewer and fewer hands and i don't think those things are those processes are good and I'm fascinated by American history and American ideals and idealism, and I don't think those things fit with American idealism either. I think this was a nation of, in its origins, was a nation of sort of small farmers and, and people that, to one extent or another, stood on their own feet or tried to. 
and that was part of the American dream. I'm I'm a huge fan of Wendell Berry. I'm lucky enough next week I'm going to do an event with Wendell Berry, which is uh, a dream for me. But I think he's right. I think there are flaws in the world we're building, and they're flaws that won't go away. They're going to get worse, and they're going to lead to all sorts of problems. So much of the cheap food that we're eating in cities all around the world is the result of very intensive farming systems, which are the result of hormones and antibiotics and oil. And I'm not knocking the farmers that do that. They've just responded to what everybody tells them they want, which is cheaper and cheaper food. But I, I personally think those things aren't sustainable in the long run. The antibiotics are ceasing to work. The oil will run out at some stage. There's more than we thought there was, but it'll still run out someday. And I think we'll then have to go back to some of the more historic farming systems. And when you tweet about these things, and you do tweet about these fairly extensively, do you get a, any sort of pushback from readers in terms of... I mean, I'm fascinated by these issues as well. But I'm also wondering if there are folks who are like, you know, I came here for the pictures about sheep. I would say I get sort of 80% positive response. People are following me because they know I care about things. And, yeah. and they probably care about those things too. But the truth is I get two kinds of kickback occasionally. I get one, which I tend to ignore, which is people saying I came for the cute sheep dogs and the sheep. Why are you talking about politics? That's, that's people's choice. I understand that. I actually had a really intelligent, thoughtful exchange of messages the other day with an American lady who said, I don't object to you having political views. But your Twitter feed is where I go to escape from our current political predicament. She said, so please, can we not have that on your feed? Can we, you know, I understand that. That was an intelligent, thoughtful request from her, which I'll try to an extent to, to live with. The other, the other kind of feedback I get back, which I think is even more challenging, is I've had feedback from people who, I mean, my family weren't wealthy when I was growing up by any means. They were struggling quite often, but there are people a lot poorer than me in, in America and Britain and, and then have and poorer than I've ever been, and had a really good exchange with with the lady recently where she said, "Look, I can't afford organic chicken. I can't afford to do all the things you probably want me to do to sort of, to to lead to sort of better farming." And and I can't argue with that actually. After a long thoughtful discussion with that person, I sort of agreed. Look, if I'm in the situation you're in, I'm going to feed my family, and I'm I'm going to some of the ethical issues further down my list of priorities. I, I'm not judging that person or any of those people. You've got to do what you've got to do, but. I think in America, in the UK, in the wealthier countries, there are an enormous number of us, probably a vast majority of us, who can actually make different choices. We can, through the money we spend, through the way we vote, we can have better food systems, better farming systems that are better for animals, better for the environment, and better for rural places. That's a lot to, to fit into 140 characters, <laughs> uh, even, even if a couple of tweets in a row. When you were doing the first book, particularly, what was that stretch like to... To say, like, okay, well, I've been doing these tweets for a while. That's yep. great. Now I'm going to, you know, to do, like, a full-length manuscript. Well, the, the, the truth is, um, that isn't how it happened. <laughs> for 20 years, I've written for magazines. Okay. okay, I mostly did it anonymously. I started writing in a, a longer form, writing features for magazines. Nearly always with somebody else's name, name on them, but I, I was writing features. And when I was about 20, I started writing this book. So uh, everything about my writing was in a longer form, was in prose. I wasn't trying to do anything in 140 characters. I was actually a reluctant convert to Twitter. Uh, friends of mine persuaded me to do it uh, about four years ago now. Uh, so I haven't had to move from Twitter to a longer form. I was always a person that wrote in a longer form, and then I, I, I've actually had to learn how to do the 140 character thing. The truth is, I love that. I'm, you can probably tell from this interview, I'm the kind of person that has a million thoughts a, you know, a million thoughts a minute. My mouth goes 100 miles an hour. And I, I really enjoy the discipline of trying to say something quite precise and hopefully intelligent in 140 characters. And, and hopefully saying it in a way that's reasonably entertaining because nobody wants to listen to a lecture, do they? Nobody wants to read sort of page after page of somebody pompous lecturing you about something you know about already. So I really enjoy that interaction with all of those people. I think it's a good 
discipline. I think many, lots of writers can, can probably hone their skills by doing that. And the other thing about your Twitter account, and, and this is really showcased or, or featured very well in the Shepherd's View, is the photographs, you know, the pictures mm-hmm. of the sheep and, and the dogs and all that. The second book has more color photography, really gives a showcase of, of what you've been up to. In the same way that you've, you, you've described how you've been able to, to write the tweets has changed in the two years, have you noticed yourself becoming, you know, a different kind of photographer? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think one of the uh, one of the interesting challenges about Twitter is that I've now I looked the other day. I've now done sort of twenty thousand tweets over four or five years, and some of my amazing followers, lovely people, have followed me for those four years. They don't want the same photo <laughs> fifteen hundred times. So it is actually quite interesting. I, I'm I'm always looking for new ways to to capture something or new parts of what I do to tell the story of. And some of the most successful interactions I have with those eighty-five thousand people are when I tell them about something that I previously thought was beneath mention, that's so obvious to me, I never thought I'd have to explain to anybody. Uh, to give you an example of that, this, this, will, this will sound absurd, but, but there was recently I recently had a conversation on there about what a field is for. And uh, most people listening to that will think, oh my God, that's ridiculous. You have to explain what a field's for. But actually, when we started to talk about it, and people started asking questions, we came up with this about sort of 15 or 20 different functions that a field have. And, and no two people seem to have understood it in quite the same way. So some of these things that we take for granted, uh, we often don't fully understand, uh, particularly in modern life, if it's not our job to understand. It can be really interesting to, to bounce that stuff around. And at the end of it, I get these amazing messages from people around the world going, I had no idea that's what field, you know, that's, that there were all these different reasons for having a field or it enabled you to do all these different things. But one of the things I'm, I'm most interested in and I'm going to cover in the next book that I'm writing is the sort of ethical and moral dilemmas that come up by being a farmer uh, or come up uh, because you eat and I grow the thing that you want to eat. I don't think any of us can really opt out of this. Uh, I think it's quite tempting in a sort of urban, modern setting to think you can opt out of impacts on wildlife, on watercourses and other things. My observation, which I believe sincerely, is that actually you can't. You can lessen your footprint, but you can't opt out of it. And in the next book I'm writing, I'm sort of exploring that and trying to explain how difficult it is. You mentioned that this is your first trip to the United States and you've got a lot going on in the week or so that you're here. Uh, in, including that, that meeting with Wendell Berry, which, which sounds really fascinating. You know, because you're a working farmer, you know, one of the, the things that I was thinking about was what kind of juggling goes into figuring out, like, you know, okay, when, when can I come to America? <laughs> well, that, that's, that's really easy. So the, um, anyone that knows about the book world will know, but for those of them that don't, um, all of the organizing of these things is done by publicists and publishers. And frankly, they asked me six months ago, when could you go to America? And I said, look, through the summer, I can't go. I've got to shear my sheep and I've got to um, make the hay and I've got to take the sheep to and from the mountain when we're working on them. Uh, and then in the autumn, we have all of our sheep sales. And they actually ended four days ago, the last one of our sheep sales. So we've just gone through a six-week period where we make most sort of 80% of our annual income uh, where we're working flat out to take, prepare and show sheep and take them through the sales. Uh, and I told my American publisher, once that's done, I can come to America. I can get a fr- I can get a friend and a shepherd that I work with to stand in for me for a couple of weeks um, at a stretch. And that's exactly what's happened. To be fair to my publishers, they've worked here, they've worked around my farming life. And and I should probably explain for anyone listening that this is not normal for me. Uh, uh, having two weeks away from the farm is probably the longest time I've been away from the farm in three or four years. I've had a two-day trip to Spain and a two-day trip to Norway in the last six months. But apart from that, every day I'm at home and I'm working on the farm. And overwhelmingly, whenever I do anything like this in the media, it tends to be from my farm. And people come to the farm when they, uh, the journalists would work with me on the farm for the day and observe what I do and maybe interview me for half an hour while I'm having my dinner. 
you've only been here in the States a day as we're conducting this interview, yep. so uh, I guess the homesickness hasn't quite quite kicked in full throttle yet. Yesterday it does. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, frankly, I'm the kind of person that if I never left home, I never left the valley where I live ever again, I, I, I wouldn't have any regrets. I love my, I literally love my life, every moment of it. But also, I have to be sensible. I'm really lucky, aren't I? I'm, I got to write a book. I got it published. I get to have amazing conversations with people. And people, I hope, maybe I can have a small amount of influence about the things I care about in the world. So, frankly, I've got to suck it up, haven't I? I've got to, uh, and it's an amazing opportunity. I was in Chicago yesterday. I'm in New York today. I, I think it's good for all of us to come out of our comfort zone a little bit. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning very, very quickly about America and uh, sort of urban life in America in particular. I'm so glad that you're having that opportunity and that you're, granting us um, your presence here in the States for a while. Uh, I have been talking with James Rebanks. Uh, his two books are The Shepherd's Life and The Shepherd's View. They're both from Flatiron Books. As you heard, he's working on a third book about ethics and farming that I can't wait to read. And I'm sure that after you read these two, you won't be able to wait to read that either. But in the meantime, you will find him on Twitter as the Herdwick Shepherd, at HerdyShepherd1. You have been listening to Life Stories, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll go on iTunes and maybe rate it with a bunch of stars and give it a good review. That'll make it that much easier for someone else to find it down the line. And if you subscribe through iTunes, you'll also be alerted whenever new episodes come out. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening, and I'll join you again soon. Take care.